This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. With Westminster packed up for recess, this is the first in our series of summer specials. Britain's political comedians and satirists are all heading for the Edinburgh Fringe and I'm delighted to be joined by three people with very different shows. Nick Hall brings his show Spencer, the story of Spencer Percival, the only British Prime Minister to have been assassinated. He asks if, in this age of Brexit, Trump, Corbynista and Maybot, could we still learn something from the past? Jess Green's show is pretty self-explanatory, a self-help guide to being in love with Jeremy Corbyn. She'll describe how it was impossible to resist the Labour leader's raw communist sex appeal. And Pierre Novelli's show, See Novelli, Hear Novelli, Speak Novelli, promises satire for people without a team. Welcome to you all. So um, let's start with you, Nick. Sure. Explain why, with so much going on in politics right now, you decide to go to the Fringe uh, with a show about Spencer Percival. And explain who Spencer Percival was. Of course, yeah. So Spencer Percival, uh, as your introduction suggested, is the only Prime Minister ever to be assassinated. He was killed, uh, shot walking through the House of Commons, or the old House of Commons, as it was then. No one's really heard of him, really. Uh, although, as I do the show, I find that usually men over 65 do turn up and nit- <laughs> nitpick the show, <laughs> pointing out historical They do that with all shows. Though, they do, they? yeah, that's yeah. true. Any anyone, <laughs> any of our shows will have a 65-year-old man telling us we're not doing it right. Yes, so it's a show that's sort of been, it's a story that's been forgotten from history. So it was really sort of trying to tell that story um, and seeing if there were any, yeah, any parallels that could be drawn with, with the present. I mean, I, I've sort of worked in politics previously, but my comedy... D- it hasn't really touched on politics. I haven't felt in the right way. I don't know how to sort of address a lot of the things that are going on. And through Spencer's story and, and looking back at that, it sort of found I found an avenue to maybe talk a little more about the current state of things and, and where we are. And what 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 is that mess? What what are the parallels that you can draw? Well, I mean, the world of 18, May 1812 was, you know, there was um, social and economic unrest, new technologies clashing with old models. Uh, we were warring with Europe. There was an unpopular prime minister who had been brought in just over a year and a half earlier and vain, glorious colleagues in the cabinet were jostling for their job. So immediately I saw... <laughs> There's nothing there at no, all. No, exactly. Could, exactly. So the first <laughs> step was, how do you at all make this relevant? It's a very, it was a very polarised, trill time. There were, you know, Luddites, anarchists, revolutionaries, business leaders all clamoring and I started to see certain parallels a certain febrile atmosphere now of course I'm not suggesting that 
you know, God forbid anything's going to happen tomorrow. But I did start to see echoings, particularly from the referendum in the last two years of different groups wanting to have their voice heard. And yet at the centre of it was also a man, a very human story about the assassin and a failed businessman who just felt that he hadn't got his lot in life. But at the same time, there was a little human story coming through. And how do you do the show? You in character? Brilliant film called A Cock and Bull Story. Yeah, Steve Coogan. Uh, yes, which is fantastic. Yeah. And it's Tristan Shandy. The, 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 you know, that sort of maybe first postmodern story in, in that the character tells his own life story while playing all his other characters. So I'm Spencer playing Nick, playing all the other characters in my lifetime, including me as a baby in the womb all the way through, playing my <laughs> wife and second cousin removed. And we do it as a tongue-in-cheek rags to riches X-Factor story. Spencer wants to become prime minister. His dad forbids it. And then we start to reveal the truth. It was a posh white guy. It easily becomes the most powerful person in the land. This is our Hamilton, the musical, basically. And, and when he was killed, there yes. was sort of there was jubilation in the streets, wasn't there? Was, it? They were literally they were dancing in the streets. Uh, you know, many years before Mick Jagger, um, they uh, <laughs> and in Liverpool they went crazy. They went mad. He he banned slavery and and done things like that, which you would have thought had him or, or been involved in that process. And um, most, you know, places like Bristol and Liverpool were livid with that, which they don't like to be reminded about when I find when I do previews there. <laughs> they, uh, you know, certainly they have a, a no, problem with that. No one likes to remember where their fanciest buildings are. Yes, exactly. The clue's in the name, isn't it? Well, yeah, and in Bristol in particular, there's been a big debate recently about Colston Hall and that sort of thing. Yes. We know all of those. And there were links to sort of Liverpool. Liverpool was a very febrile atmosphere. The talk in the pubs was killing him. And, and there were, yeah, they assumed that within an hour outside Parliament, there was a, a mob. Um, cheering it. The Prince Regent fled to Brighton. They they thought that evening there was going to be a revolution. The newspaper carriages come, with the news out of London were sort of stopped and it was thought we've got a container on this. It thought that this was the start of the revolution. This was like France all over again. Um, and then as the story, it, it's a comedy show and then it starts to become more serious. Spencer Spencer is shot. He doesn't see this coming. And then he starts to sort of work out to try and cement his legacy. He wants to be the greatest prime minister ever. So he imagines, fantasizes, he's imagining these great conspiracy theories that will seal his fate, um, that he will be the JFK or the, you know, the John Wilkes Booth or whoever of his day. And actually, we find out that he, he, he gets his immortality, but in a slightly different way. Why is it, do you think, people don't know who he is? Because you'd think of all the ways to get your place in the history books as a prime minister, it, being the only one who was assassinated is quite a, you know, it's quite a big bang way of doing it. It's pretty good, isn't it? It's it's pretty good. It's an odd one. I I don't have an honest answer. I think sometimes I there's a dangerous territory where you say, well, we don't teach British history, you know, and that's a bit lazy, I think. You know, we don't teach the Civil War anymore. You know, it's a real shame when we teach the Nazis and the French Revolution, but we don't teach good old British history. But I think there is a fact there. Um, it wasn't. It was. It's quite a boring story. I mean, my tongue is in cheek for a lot of it because the first thing I, I wanted to do was write, tell this story about Spencer Percival. I read five biographies about him and found the story isn't that he wasn't a very good prime minister. The assassin didn't have a grand motive. There's nothing really to draw you in. But but then at the same time, what you do is you tease it and you sort of bring it through. But um, I have an idea that, that we don't really like killing our leaders. Um, Americans do it much more successfully. Colombians do it brilliantly. Um, but <laughs> but maybe again, I turn in the show that maybe that's an oversimplification. And actually what I end up in concluding that this idea that Brits are very boring and make and mild and we wouldn't dare dare say boo to a goose, you know, the events of two years ago in, in West Yorkshire, the events even with, with Rosie Cooper in, in the in PMQs a few weeks ago, um, having had the trial where, you know, a Nazi um, 
sympathise or uh, uh, there had been a plot to kill her was a very emotional moment and a reminder that that these things do go on all the time and are going on and uh, will probably continue as long as we keep banging on about traitors and racists and endless polarizing things like that yeah that, that all, all that language is um utterly depressing let's 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 bring it bang up to date <laughs> i couldn't think of a more up-to-date uh way of go, we'll go for the 1830s right bang up to date <laughs> just let's talk about your show uh, a self-help guide for being i forgot what it's called already. a self-help guide to being in love with jeremy corbyn <laughs> right so explain because you've been in the labor party for a long time yeah well 10 years 10 years uh so you sort of spans tony blair yeah, yeah. So I joined when I was 18, so 11 years actually. Yeah. So um yeah, I joined when Gordon Brown was leader. Okay. Yeah. That 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 giddy, those yeah. giddy. <laughs> yeah, high exciting point. times. Yeah. <laughs> we were all queuing up, I remember. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um so yeah, the show is about it's a poetry and music show with a live band. And it is about um, my love-hate relationship with the Labour Party over the past 11 years. Um, it's about the rise of Jeremy Corbyn and it's about the division of the left. How do you explain your love of Jeremy Corbyn? I mean, the title is slightly tongue-in-cheek. He is definitely my favourite uh, leader of the Labour Party so far during my lifetime. Um, but the title kind of refers to what Jeremy Corbyn has done to the Labour Party over the past three years. And I just think... It's astonishing the way that, I mean, I, I think I can probably only speak for kind of young people, but there are so many factions of society who I think before Jeremy Corbyn felt just kind of locked out of politics. Politics was complicated and deliberately so and only for the educated and the eloquent. And they felt like, and I think a lot of people felt like they didn't have a voice in politics. And it shouldn't have worked because he's this like straight white 70 year old man he shouldn't have been the person who's been able to galvanize 18 year olds living in hackney alongside 70 year old trade unionists living in newcastle and yet he has and i think that that is astonishing so that's kind of what the show's about is it um undying unquestioning love for Jeremy <laughs> or do you address any of his foibles or absolutely yeah or... i mean and it's something which oh, i've just finished uh my previews we did previews over the weekend in the midlands and i'm constantly having to do rewrites i'm having to do rewrites <laughs> about brexit i'm having to do rewrites about the anti-semitism and it definitely it definitely um addresses those issues and i think that because if i just unquestioningly loved jeremy corbyn i don't think that would particularly get anything done and i think it 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 looks at the fact that the left will just tear itself to pieces over anything and particularly at the moment about Jeremy Corbyn and how that is one of the reasons why it's difficult to achieve anything sometimes on the left. When you've been doing the previews, what's been the sort of response to it? Do you only get Corbynistas who come or do you get people who are sort of Corbyn curious, want to, want to know why really, you would... If that's, that's the right phrase. <laughs> yeah, no, it, no, we, and we've got both. It's been interesting. Um, so we did our first preview on Thursday, and so we've done three since then, and we really weren't sure what sort of people we were going to get. And we definitely get people who absolutely love Jeremy Corbyn. And at one point, I asked the audience, who here is because they love Jeremy Corbyn? And who is here because their partner loves Jeremy Corbyn and they've been dragged along? <laughs> so it definitely, we have a real range of people. And I think that it, some of the responses that we were getting on social media were people saying, Actually, I'm not sure about Jeremy Corbyn, but that this show raises some issues about why 
even if you don't love Jeremy Corbyn and agree with everything he thinks, it's important that we do get behind the Labour Party at a time where we have the biggest party membership of any political party in the country. Just before we move on and uh, talk to Pierre, one of the big stories going into the summer recess was about people leaving the Labour Party because of anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. People who've been in the Labour Party for a long time and just saying, you know, I've put up with a lot and you go with the ups and the downs and all of that. But up with this, I cannot put. Is that crossed your mind at all? I mean, it would cause big problems with your show. But um, the debate around anti-Semitism and the fact that for whatever reason, the Labour Party won't just accept the same definition as everyone else for Mm. for anti-Semitism. And the message of that sending, has that been uncomfortable for you? I mean, it is uncomfortable. It's really difficult, isn't it? Because I'm not going to, you know, I'm not Jewish. I'm not going to say that there's no anti-Semitism within the Labour Party because I don't think that's my place to say that. If a Jewish person says there is, then I think we have to believe them. Do I think that Corbyn's anti-Semitic? No. You know, Margaret Hodges just called him a racist. I mean, this is a man who has spent his career fighting racism. And I do think that it's interesting that these arguments keep coming up whenever Corbyn and the Labour Party seem to be doing quite well. I mean, you know, it's just been announced that they're ahead in the polls. But, you know, I'm saying this as a non-Jewish white person, so maybe my opinion should be taken with a pinch of salt on that. Pierre, let's move on and um, talk to you. Now, as somebody, a long time ago, I took a show to Edinburgh, and I'd say that your show title has all the hallmarks of it could cover anything. It was a title you came up with some time ago for the Fringe Guide. You have to come up with them in January. Exactly. And so you, come up, they were you keep it nice and vague. You keep yeah. it nice and vague. So what is what is your show all about? Well, uh, uh, politics has always been like my football, but I've made my career so far being a largely observational comedian. I haven't really taken it onto the stage. And if I have, I've hidden it, you know, behind enough bushels so that uh, people don't think I'm being political if I am. Yeah. And then uh, I got uh, writing and a job on the MASH report and I appeared a couple of times and yeah. I've written for Mock the Week and a few other things. A friend of mine said, why don't you just, just do one, just do a more satirical show? And uh, so I'm giving it a go. But uh, the problem is that um, it's much easier to do a satirical show if you have a team. If you have a clear corner, you can defend and pick it out and say, this is good, this is bad. And nice uh, you know uniforms and colors and so on i don't at the moment genuinely i mean i mostly don't I, as a stand-up i don't understand stand-ups who are members of political parties because i think you or journalists for that matter because how can you claim to be objective if you're fully paid up get your subscription through the post kind of thing but yeah so i'm trying to write i'm trying to write an intellectually responsible satire show which is a huge waste of time which is just <laughs> because by definition it's gonna end up being just rude about everyone and then rude, rude about everyone or so nuanced that no one's pleased to see you yeah and you don't get many fans yeah. <laughs> in the process of writing it have you found yourself coming down on a particular side or argument mostly there's a line i put in the show which is most of us agree with most of us there's an enormous sort of vague center ground, even like center left, center right, where everyone can go, well, yeah, obviously that. Yeah. You know, there should be freedom <laughs> of the press. You go, yeah, of course. Whereas, uh, well, well yeah. <laughs> but here's the not thing. Not everyone. <laughs> but here's the thing. Not everyone, but most of us agree with most of us. Yeah. Whereas what we're getting more and more obsessed by, and the, Nick, you mentioned the divisiveness we have now rhetorically, everyone's getting obsessed by their most extreme versions of themselves and the edges and the sort of the idea that the solution to something uh, that's a big problem is necessarily extreme because that's more exciting to us as humans. It's like, no, we need a big, loud solution that can sort of cause lots of noise. And whereas in reality, uh, especially as something like politics, the answer is often so boring and regulatory. Mm. And in a, a long contract where you change one subclause and oh, and in five years we'll do a review, that's not interesting. 
everyone uh, on both sides is getting more and more interested in well, on both sides, like there's two anymore. Yeah, well, exactly, <laughs> Sorry, all yeah. seven sides. Yeah, uh, <laughs> is getting more and more interested in the the sort of most colourful, flavourful version of what they already are biased towards liking. Now, all three of you, we sort of touched on Brexit, but they're not the the main bit of your show. And actually, one of the things we've tried to do on the podcast occasionally, I've banned all mention of Brexit yeah. because you end up just picking over the same old ground. However, it is still the biggest thing. It's on the front pages all the time. It's a thing which is totally dominating politics. And yet, my sense is there are people who are totally into it, really, really, really into it. Yeah. And everyone else really isn't. It, it's like a sort of lacrosse World Cup. There are some people <laughs> who are really into it. And nobody, you know, other people are sick of it. And they don't want to hear. It. Is that your sort of sense? You try to sort of weigh that up in the, your subject matter. You've got to keep it broad because, like you say, it's like a cryptic crossword tournament. It, it's so niche and so complicated, and um, people are sick of it because it's taking too long. Uh, everyone's whether you're for or against it, everyone's bored. And so, what's your satirical but non-specific take on Brexit? We're not negotiating. We're negotiating with ourselves. And we negotiate with ourselves, and it tears the country apart for a year, and it takes us a whole year of bloody civil war to decide that we would like a unicorn. And we go to the EU and say, can we have a unicorn? They say, well, no, of course not. We go, oh, God, that's another year of bloody civil war. And then we return and say, we've changed our minds. We would instead like a mono-horned mythical stallion. I say, well, no, still no. <laughs> and we go, God, these people are negotiating hard. Where's the negotiating? They have all the cards. Jess, you were looking perplexed at the idea that people were not interested in Brexit or bored of Brexit? No, I was kind of... I constantly find it difficult to, to kind of keep up with, with how interested I am in Brexit because I just... You ought to try to write about it every day. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. I've been trying to do these rewrites on the show to try and keep up with it and I just... I mean, I kind of find the kind of drama of it quite fascinating. I mean, I just love that May took the whole gang to checkers and she came out and was like, right, we've got it sorted. And then by Monday, the Tories had blown themselves apart and the resignations came in. So I'm quite interested in the drama of it. But I think it's really hard to keep up with kind of, you know, Reese Mogg is making this amendment to the trade bill. And actually, what does that mean? And I kind of think, you know, if I am someone who loves politics and follows all the political accounts on Twitter and reads up on it and I can't keep up with it, then what chance does, you know, the average layperson who takes about kind of a 10% interest in politics have of keeping up with it? I think it's really difficult. And I think even people who were passionate Brexiteers when the referendum was happening have probably now lost interest in it because it's just just so complicated. There was, there was a poll a couple of months ago from YouGov and it asked how interested were you in Brexit and only 10% or I think 7% of leavers thought it was very interesting <laughs> <laughs> and it was your you know that was it's, it's only we're only doing it because of you um, yeah, even your part of it what about you Nick it's kind of everything and nothing it's constantly febrile and ever changing every day you know with new agreements a few weeks ago Brexiteers were aghast now they think they've won because in October there'll be no deal and we'll, we'll be fine they think I was reading they can um, now Brexiteers are delighted they think literally in the last few hours of the deal, you know, they'll get something, you know, when Indiana Jones always gets his hat just before the trap door comes down, you know. It's an amazing idea, isn't it, that we can convince the European Union to 
behave in such a way that it would destroy itself. Yes, yeah, purely for our benefit. Exactly. We're we're quite happy to give away deals on automotive industry just at yeah. the, within Ple- se- with seven minutes to go. Yeah, please please kill please. yourself so we can live in your house. We we yeah we we never it's really liked our offer, German car manufacturers <laughs> anyway, so we're happy to hamstrung them. But it it's it, Sophie Brahl and, and like Jess said, it's constantly having to rewrite material, and everyone is no one's happy about it. I mean, I'm a I was a Remainer because. I live within the M25, and I think it was illegal not to. But I think that was the memo I got. You've been moved out. But I'm, I'm done yeah. with the endless talk about Canada Triple X and backstops, back rubs, and and the Norway model, which to me just sounds like a straight to DVD, you know, horror film, like a, you know, a Scandinavian Canada human Triple X sounds like a completely different. DVD. All these things, yeah. and 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 no one's happy. And yeah, the Brexiteers are, are complaining that the government have got them in this mess, which is like. You know, putting your genitals in a blender and blaming Argos, you know, if I'm allowed to say that. I don't know. So there, that's my witty take. People have said much worse. People have said much worse. Uh, listen, we're just going to have a very quick um, ad break. When we come back after this, we're going to have a game of political tombola. We'll try and work out what that means in a sec. We'll be back after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Chorley. I'm joined in the studio by Nick Hall, Jess Green and Pierre Novelli. We're going to play a game of, because it's sort of summer and it's summer fates and that sort of thing, uh, political tombola. Um, we'll add the sound effect of a tombola later because it might sound a bit like pieces of paper in an envelope. Uh, basically, is it just p- politicians, political things going on in the news? Uh, is it possible to be funny about them? Or are you sick of them? And to what extent do you think that comedy can cover everything that's going on in politics? Who wants to go? Jess, you can go first. Oh, good. Daunted by this. Checkers. Checkers. Is it possible to funny about checkers? I mean, I guess so. I, f- I feel like that was like a year ago now. I feel like, you know, we've lost our saviour of the NHS and Boris Johnson's gone and kind of everything's everything's changed since checkers. So I don't know. I feel like that's already old news. It's, I mean, sort, of, it's sort of weird how the, just checkers just becomes a sort of catch-all. For it's such a weird name. Everything. I think that's the one thing people have heard of checkers now. Mm. Checkers is such an odd 1920s. It sounds like a, a game that, you know, you play at public boarding yeah. school involving some kind of, you know, chestnut and buttocks thing. You know, check, <laughs> it's off to checkers. So if nothing else, the checkers agreement now people have heard of. Because, I mean, the second we heard of it, it exploded. Yes. Yeah. So it's not very useful. Well, I think that's part of the problem with trying to follow Brexit. Is if every so often, if you sort of stop and think, right, I'm going to really get my head about Right, check, yeah. checkers seems like a big deal. I'm going to read up on it, get my head around it. Yeah. And then I will know what's going on. 
And that lasts for 48 hours yeah, before, too bad. <laughs> before it all explodes. And you just say, what's the point? There's no well, point me. And, and also, if you're a normal person who doesn't know everything there is to know about politics, you, it's hard to understand the fact that there's so many layers. There's the internal Tory party issues. Then there's the parliamentary negotiation issues. And then there's us and the EU. And then there's within the EU. And then there's the EU bureaucracy slightly above the EU. And then there's the individual countries within the EU. And, and it goes on. So if you hear someone's disagreed with the deal, that could mean anything. Mm, yeah. yeah. So, uh, who is the someone? What is the deal? <laughs> Why do they disagree with it? Which doesn't matter. There aren't enough hours of the day. Uh, okay, you have another go. This guy. Buses. Buses, ah. yes. So there's a big thing at PMQs a couple of weeks ago where Jeremy Corbyn asked lots of questions about buses. Yes. And uh, lots of the... Westminster establishment. Ooh, what's he talking about buses for? Which was quite annoying. Which was followed by an almost equally annoying outpouring from other members of the Westminster elite who said, "Oh God, don't you know poor people use buses?" As if this was like some great insight that they were they were bringing yes. bringing to this. What do you make of buses generally as an issue? Is is there a when you're doing comedy? Do you have to think about who the audience is? And because to some extent, Jeremy Corbyn was trying to play to an audience outside Westminster. Yeah, the stuff that people actually... Get, I bet far more people care about buses than they do about Brexit. Buses and trains, yeah. yeah. Just general public transport. But then the the, the trouble is that uh, one of the most annoying things anyone can do is do something that's not wrong, but it's not right in the right way. So if your house was burning down and someone said, well, we need to fix the couch. You go, I'm not saying we don't need to fix the couch. <laughs> I'm saying there's a lot more going on that will eventually come to affect the couch as well. And perhaps we should prioritise that. Because if we have a no-deal Brexit, there will be no buses. There will be nothing. We will have food in cans. It'll be the blitz all over again. I think what you're um, doing there is you're talking Britain down. <laughs> if, am, we all, yeah. if we all just cheered up a bit, we're a bit more positive, <laughs> uh, we'd all be fine. Nick, your go. When you said buses, I thought you the referendum again, the side oh, yes, of a bus. Yes. Oh, that as well. Which yeah. I think is when, with when the Ramones, or as I call them, the Ramones, um, they're, they're always like the country was lied to by the side of a bus. We're always being lied to by the side of a bus, you know. Yeah, that's true. I think Kevin Bacon actually likes football. It's mad. <laughs> right, okay. Oh, oh, it's a good, it's a doozy. Max Fax Customs Arrangements. Oh. Do you know what? I mean, I, I'm going to take that off. Is here. that too? <laughs> that's, that's, we've had enough. It's Brexit. so boring. You've grabbed it. Have another go. Have another go. Okay. Chris Grayling. Chris Grayling. Wow. God. Now, I think, and I've fallen out with him and his people, so there's no point me uh, beating about the bush. He is one of the worst politicians I've come across. As a as a as a public speaker, he is without doubt given the worst speech I've ever heard by a politician. <laughs> He's an incredibly dull man, and yet he seems to be started to get cut through in public, I think because of the mess on the trains and the buses and whatever. Yeah. Is there a, is there a space now for material about Chris Grayling, or have we not yet reached that, that sweet spot? I think there needs to be a sweet, sw- a sweet spot, if I can say the words, between sort of notoriety but also being known as boring. You can make Philip Hammond would exist in that space, I think. Chris Grayling, you need to sort of bring up a little more. You've got your Jeremy Hunt. He's, you know, generally sort of disliked because people, you know, the NHS and so on, and now he's moved over. Grayling exists in a grey area, and I don't quite know whether he's just on that level where where he can be a punchline, you know, like you say, that grey man. Yeah. Jess, you're shaking your head. I also think that when you've got, um, you know, the Donald Trumps and the Nigel Farages and kind of such big characters, I think to the average layperson, yeah, they're bothered that, trains are a mess but they're not that interested in Chris Grayling I think the average person another hammer blow for that poor man yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> I just you have another go I'm terrified by this envelope um... 
It's not an envelope, it's a tombola. Sorry, it's a, it's, it's a lovely, tombola. it's a wonderful tombola. <laughs> <laughs> Theresa May. Theresa May. We've barely, we've barely spoken about her in the last uh, 20 minutes or so. The really interesting thing, I think, about Theresa May is that some of my friends and kind of peers on the performance circuit who are so staunch left have started feeling sorry for Theresa May. And I just think, in what world are we living in where you know, us lefties are feeling sorry for Theresa May? I just think... And people it's are saying, you're oh, a genuinely nice human being. I don't feel sorry for her. Do you not? No, not, not at all. The, the, not the, at the all. tiniest part of your heart. She wanted to be leader. She took this poison chalice on. I don't feel sorry for her at all. And I'm I'm quite... And that's probably really cruel, isn't it? But I'm quite... I just really enjoy the drama of it. I just think it's <laughs> so enjoyable. And someone, somewhere, I really hope is writing the script of the past three years because I just think it's... Brilliant. But it would be unbelievable if somebody produced this script. There's, a slight, uh, there's this Brexit drama movie thing which is coming out next year with Benedict oh, Cumberbatch yeah. playing implausibly playing Dominic Cummings. I just think, I don't want to, that's going to seem like ancient history when yeah. we have this yeah. sort of explosive news all the time. Um, I totally agree with you about Theresa May. I just think she she went for the, Nobody made her do it. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Turns out she's rubbish. And if we take some joy from pointing that out on a daily well, basis. Well, it's a, it's a funny thing, isn't it, where your main skill as Prime Minister is to do nothing. It's very difficult to do nothing when you have two different teams of opposing views and you've got scream, quite, screaming in your ear and to you've do got something. Quite a big thing to do. <laughs> yes, that's yeah. the point. I've, yeah. I'm but you know that no matter what way you do it, it will kill you. <laughs> so she's just sitting there going, well, maybe if I sit for long enough. Controversially, I find I I also quick plug, I'm doing a free fringe show as well, which is also which is about modern politics as well. It's called Peninsula. Unfortunately, I I left the Labour Party last year. I'm sort of, you know, more of a I suppose Blair, I suppose, which is now a bit of a swear word. But I find Theresa May quite inspirational. There's a part in the show when you feel the bums clench and the intake of breath. Just from last year, she suffers the most humiliating electoral defeat in modern political history. She marched out in front of Downing Street. <laughs> She's been crying. She looks broken. Everyone expects her to hand in her resignation. She just goes, well, I look forward to forming a government. And then marches <laughs> in Downing Street. I mean, it's like you go out and get pissed and you vomit all over your boss. And then you walk in the next day into his office and go, I look forward to producing this month's sales report. Yeah. And then just walk in and everyone's so dumbfounded. She's still there. With the double finger guns. Yes, yeah, exactly. I think there is something that I find a quite inspiring person, but the reaction I get is brilliant because everyone's like... Oh. I do think there was a thing um, with her. It was her and Yvette Cooper the other day talking about um, trade deals. And, you know, sometimes being a sort of political writer and performer, I, you know, sometimes feel like I do suffer with imposter syndrome and do I really know enough about what I'm talking about? And then hearing Theresa May trying to talk about trade tariffs and actually she doesn't know what she's talking about, and which makes me feel a lot better about sometimes I don't know what I'm talking about. There were times, Jess, when I think you'd probably do a better job, but the best one about you're not Prime Minister I'm and not. she does need to know about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and that exchange at the Select Committee, like, uh, uh, with Yvette uh, Cooper was yeah. hilariously bad. Yeah. <laughs> really awful. I actually think that there were times when I think it's an absolute bloody disgrace that she's Prime Minister. But anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, you have another go on the, on the tombola. Michel Barnier. Yes, now this is interesting. We've talked about a year ago, I think, we, we had some comedians here. We were talking about all of our political discussion is mainly about what's happening on this side. Yeah. Is, the, is there a comedic discussion about the other side the other cat Michel Barnier and uh, Jean-Claude Juncker and it's it's tough because in a, in a at a comedy club level on a, on a Saturday night <laughs> when everyone's drunk it's hard enough to get specific about politics but uh, from my experience I mean, on, a, on most days Jean-Claude Juncker days. I think yes, is, uh, he's in the crowd shouting <laughs> yeah. he's there with the lads, yeah, yeah. The back. Oh, at drinks. the back, yeah. yeah. With a brown paper bag. And, uh, 
it's tough because the UK public is never that particularly engaged emotionally or intellectually with European politics, either domestic individual European countries or EU politics. Yeah. So they're only the, the only cr- members of the crowd who will know the names are ones who know them uh, from the two minutes hate. You know? Yeah. So they go, I know I'm supposed to think that that person is a sort of evil demon who's trying to screw me over. Um, so it's hard to, you know. He's the sort of Bond villain, isn't he? If, if a Bond film is just about negotiations. <laughs> yes, if, if, no, which if would be really interesting. Are, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. If, if Bond's job was to go after them and say, would you just entirely dismantle your own organisation for <laughs> yeah. me, please? B- yeah, Bond jumps in a speedboat. No. <laughs> Bond jumps in a speedboat, goes across the channel and then just sits down and has some more meetings. Yes, uh, exactly. Well, or rather has four hours of meetings in two years. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Carrying an empty case or whatever. <laughs> I don't need any papers. It's full of sandwiches. And right, I think we've got we've got time for one more. Right, hang on, I'm going to choose. I'm going to choose now. This. Yeah. Uh, no, no. <laughs> but I know the one we're going to. I'm going to. I'm going to pick. Um, uh, the Lib Dems. Oh. Yeah. Is there any? I mean, there's no political point to the Lib Dems. Apparently, is there any comedic point to the Lib Dems? I've had a good joke about you, them. You go on. Well, just the, the, them missing their own crucial opportunity to yes. destroy the government is the most Lib Dem possible thing. Because one was at a sandal festival or whatever, and the other one was preaching about how it was okay to have an issue with gays or whatever. And you just... They're, they're like uh, sort of Laurel and Hardy figures where... Just as one of them turns around to get something done politically, they hit the other one over the back of the head with the plank they were carrying sort of thing. At this point, it's just nonsense. Vince Vince Cable was setting up a meeting. He was in discussions about setting up a centre-left party, apparently. This is... Was reported. I know. I think he's forgotten it's again. A great he's irony. currently leading one. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that is currently his job. The Lib Dems are. I. I. It's very hard. It's like getting. It's like getting blood out of a stone. Making jokes about them. I sort of have a bit in in my show about how the, the political landscape. Everyone's over here on the far sides, and the centre ground is barren. Ten years ago, everyone wanted to be here. Now it's toxic. No one. Yeah. Everyone wants to stay away from it as far as possible, like Miramax. And um, <laughs> and and there's only some people here. There's the Lib Dems. They're sort of there. There's about seven of them. And Tony Blair appears from here every now and then, yeah. looking both tanned and haunted. Yes. Looking like the same but different. Like yeah, when no. you go and see S Club 7 now, but there's only three of them touring. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's very weird. Yeah. And the sort of Star Wars force ghost of David Miliband. Yes, exactly. Appears. Yeah. But Jess, a, a, a white-haired man who spent years in the political wilderness, who's uh, now pitching to the left. Surely you could you could fall in love with Vince Cable as well. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the Lib Dems. I think the Lib Dems. I use them for real comedy value i think i just think with everything that's going on with may with corbyn with brexit with trump why would you choose to still be backing the lib dems i mean what sort of what sort of world are you living in where you're still getting kind of um something back from being a lib dem i just think i I just think it's a very special kind of person who still chooses to be a lib dem pro pro eu Yeah. Pro EU, not anti-Semitic. There's a Venn diagram there or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the only party not led by either a Brexiteer or someone pretending to be a Brexiteer. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you can fill in your own gaps there. But uh, that's all we've got time for. Do your plugs. Do your plugs again. When when, and where are you on, Pierre, if people want to come and see you in Edinburgh? Quarter past seven in the evening, Pleasance Courtyard. Uh, and it's the whole month. There's no day off. You're there. You're not even having a day off? No. First uh, of the 26th of August. I nearly died just before we had our, our day off. Jess, what do you want? Um, 4th to the 25th at Bourbon Bar on Frederick Street, but no show. Oh, we were on at quarter to three, no show on the 13th or the 20th. 
I'm finding it. Uh, Nick Hall Spencer on at the Underbelly, 1st to the 27th of August. And because I'm a wimp, I'm having the 13th off. At what time? Oh, yes, at 1.30pm. Perfect, so you can do all three in a day. <laughs> so yeah. what a political sandwich. We, we, we couldn't have planned it better. My huge thanks to my guests. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Android device and sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.